and he ran to the other end of the car and he got so angry at him that he kicked at their backs and when he missed, he was so enraged that he reached down and he grabbed hold of one of the um, benches in the car and tried to rip it up off the floor. In the process of doing that, he cut his hand and it was uh, started to bleed and drip on the floor. And at that moment, the uh, doors to the train car slammed shut and the train car lurched as it started to roll out of the station and everybody froze. They were trapped with this maniac. Also sitting on the train car was, uh, in that train car was a man by the name of Terry Dobson. Um, in recent years, he's lived in the Boston area where we used to live, um, not far from where we lived, although we died a few years ago. But this was, um, this was many years ago when he was uh, in his 20s. And he had been in Tokyo studying Aikido. Uh, he had been working out eight hours a day for three years. And uh, as you know, Aikido is a very effective form of martial arts. And he loved to grapple. He loved to grapple. And he thought of himself as being pretty good. But deep in his heart of hearts, this, his one regret about all his training was that his martial skills had never been tried in live combat. Because as a student of the martial arts, he was not allowed to fight. His teacher would say, he who has the mind to defeat another has broken his connection with life. He said, in Aikido, we study how to resolve conflicts, not, not how to start them. And Terry listened hard to his teacher because he had a great deal of respect for him, didn't quite understand it all, but he did his best to follow what his uh, sensei was telling him. He would go so far as to... Um, walk on the other side of the street down near the uh, train stations to avoid the street punks. And he felt exalted in his forbearance. He felt tough and holy. But deep in his heart of hearts, he yearned for the absolutely legitimate excuse to defend the innocent by destroying the wicked. This is it, he thought, as he sat there in that train car. If I don't do something, somebody's going to get hurt. So he slowly stood up from where he was standing, and he just took hold of the commuter strap that was hanging down above. And uh, the big drunk saw him stand up and turned and looked at him. And Terry looked him down, up one side, down the other, this long look of disgust and dismissal. See, from Terry's perspective, the drunk had to make the first move. And Terry wanted him good and angry. So he pursed his lips and <laughs> blew him an insolent kiss. All right, the big guy said, I'm going to give you a lesson in manners. And he gathered himself, and just as he was started to rush towards Terry, there was this voice that... Um, went throughout the train car. Hey! It was ear-splitting. It just pierced through everything. But it had this strangely kind of a joyous, lilting tone to it. It was, it was as if 
you had lost something very precious. You know, when you and your friend had been looking and couldn't find it and looking and couldn't find it and looking, and there it is. Hey! So Terry turned to his left and the big drunk turned to his right. And there sitting, sitting in one of the train cars was this elderly Japanese gentleman. And he was, just, he was dressed immaculately in a coat and a tie. And he was just beaming delightedly up at the drunk. And his eyes sparkled with interest. Come here, he said. I want to talk to you. And waved him forward. And the big drunk staggered over standing there in front of him. Why the hell should I talk to you? We had his back to Terry now. So Terry stood there poised. That drunk took one more step towards that little man. He was going to drop him in his socks. But the little man just uh, sat there, beaming delightedly, looking up at this drunk, and he said, What you been drinking? Well... I've been drinking sake, and that's none of your damn business. And spittle sprayed all over him. And the little man said, oh, that's wonderful, that's wonderful. You know, I like sake, too. Every night, me and my wife, she's 82, you know, we like to take a little glass of sake, and we go outside, and we sit on the bench. You know, my grandfather made this bench. We like to go out and sit on this bench and watch the sun go down. And we like to uh, look and see how our persimmons tree is doing. You know, we worry about it with all the weather we've been having lately, but it's actually done really quite well when you consider the quality of the soil. Well, the big drunk was standing there listening to him, and you could see his fist kind of, uh, you know, clench and unclench as he struggled to follow the old man's conversation. And finally, the big man said, Yeah, I like persimmons too. And then his voice kind of trailed off in confusion. And the little man said, Oh, yes, yes, and I bet you have a lovely wife, too. And he said, Nah. And then he started to slowly sort of sway back and forth just a little bit with the rocking of the train car. And he said, I ain't got no wife. I ain't got no job. I ain't got no home. Their tears were starting to run down his cheeks. I feel so ashamed, and these ripples of despair just ran up through his system. You could hear his breath sobbing. There's Terry. Now he's feeling dirtier than the drunk, you know, as he stands there in his well scrubbed youthfulness and his. make the world safe from terrorist righteousness. He felt dirtier than the drunk. Little man said, my, my, that is a difficult predicament indeed. You better come sit down here and tell me about it. So at this point, the train started to slow down a little bit. It was coming into Terry's stop. So Terry left his seat and made his way back to the exit. And uh, just before he got off the train, he looked back, and there was a drunk. He was sprawled out on the seat with his head on the old man's lap, who was stroking his filthy, matted hair. And about three or four minutes later, he was standing alone on the uh, on the train station by the tracks. The people had gotten off and left, and and the train car pulled out, and he was standing there watching the 
train rattled off in the distance. And he thought, at last I've seen Aikido tried in actual combat. And the essence of it was kindness. So, how do we view the big man? How do we view the big man? Is he a threat? Is he a threat? He yelled and he screamed. He almost knocked a woman over. He was belligerent. You know, to not see him as a threat would really be naive. It'd be completely naive. But if we can't see past the belligerence, we can't see underneath the belligerence, then there really is no good way to resolve the predicament. So the uh, elderly gentleman looked at the drunk with curiosity and kindness and patience. And this allowed him to see below the surface. And it also allowed the drunk to see below the surface of what he was feeling. And underneath, um, he was just a hurting guy who had... uh, who was dealing with more misfortunes than he really knew how to manage. Does that happen to any of you? Anybody who it hasn't happened to? You know? um, all of us get in those places at times where there's just more than we know what to do with. And then we're sort of desperate you know, to bleed off the, the tension of that. And we all have our characteristic ways of doing it. You know, it may not be getting belligerent like he did, but we all know what that's like. So it's interesting to contemplate, you know, what, what is it that you do? You know, what are your characteristic ways of uh, dealing with stuff when you feel overwhelmed? So beneath the labor's uh, belligerence and hostility and all that was actually this big, tender, spacious heart that was just lost in grief and despair. Just lost in grief and despair. And this elderly gentleman, just with that simple friendliness, um, just began to help the situation unwind itself. He saw the true nature of things and it became workable. doesn't mean it was easy, but it became manageable. He uh, found the beginning of a path you know, that worked through all these troubles. So... So the mind can go off into endless speculations. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. All I can do is project into it. Yeah. 
So here we are on this retreat. And we come here looking for seeking freedom, letting go of suffering, self-compassion, expanded states, staying in the present moment, finding more of myself, learning a new practice, cuddling with our quirks, and so forth. So we come here looking for you know peace and clarity and all these things, and um, and is that what happened for you today? Maybe there were some moments here and there, but mostly, mostly on the first day of on the retreat train, it just kind of fills up with drunks, <laughs> right? You know, these uh, uninvited guests, you know that come in and sort of shake up the works when we're just seeking wisdom and peace. So after a full day of retreat, uh, you should be familiar with lots and lots of hindrances. You know, these, uh, the hindrances, um, they're not all as dramatic and colorful as that drunk, but, uh, you know, they do come in and sort of tickle the mind and... Um, get you speculating about this, that, and the other, and uh, maybe singing sweet lullabies or uh, are sometimes, you know, just stupid stuff. Um, some of you heard my story of I, I spent uh, many days in one retreat trying to design a desk lamp. You know, I just, it's like, it's just the stuff that comes up. It's like, wow. So um, I often experience the first day of a retreat as kind of a slow-motion train wreck. I don't remember how it was in the beginning, but having been on many retreats, you know, when you see the stuff starting to fall apart, it's like, okay, I know this, and I want to do something about it. But it's, it's like sort of, uh, if you've ever uh, driven in, in ice, you know, when this car starts to slide and you can see what's happening, there's not a thing you can do about it, you know. Just, there you go. So um, if this first day of retreat has been difficult for you, um, I would say that's great. You know, you're right on course. This is, uh, this is actually what we expect. So it's not what we wish on anybody, but it's what we expect. Um, and if the day has gone completely lovely for you, that's fine, too, because uh, all of us are going to have lots of hindrances as the week unfolds. It's one thing we know for sure. So um, maybe I could get some help here. And um, what I'd like to do is just make a list of some of the kinds of hindrances that have shown up for you today. So you don't have to tell a whole backstory because um, we have fat markers so we can't do fine writing on that. Um, but if you can just kind of name some of the um, hindrances or a little bit of the flavor of it. Overactive. Pardon? Overactive. Overactive. Sloth. 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 Everybody know what sloth is? Sloth is uh, is a uh, loss of motivation. 
So there's sloth and torpor. There's torpor is the fogginess of mind. And the sloth is when you're kind of sitting there and, yeah, I should six-hour this in a few minutes. (laughs) Aversion. Aversion. Do you have any particular repeated patterns of things you're averse to that you care to share out loud? (laughs) Yeah. Control freak. Control freak. So, what are you trying to control? Oh, everything. everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, right now, it doesn't. Did it matter at the time? <laughs> Doubt. 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 Loss of confidence. Messages. From the body, I'm tired of this sitting in a chair stuff. Aches. Yeah. Restlessness. Restlessness. Boredom. Boredom. Pardon? Boredom. It's a sort of. Avarice? Ooh. Avarice. Avarice. Avarice? Desire. I see. I say multiple uninvited guests. Multiple uninvited guests. Mm-hmm. You want to name just one or two of them, uh, just a representative sampling? So that's a quieter one. Loss. Loss. Frustration. Fear. Fear. So one of one of my favorite sort of forms of uh, hindrance are, I will call them, uh, earnest explanations. I'll just sit there, and for no reason I saw coming, I'm sort of explaining something to somebody, you know, quite, quite sincerely. You know. <laughs> what else? Striving to get somewhere. So, any place in particular? Or? Uh, yeah, to uh, clarity and quiet mind. So, anybody else ever strive for clarity and quiet mind? <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because we all laugh because we know how futile that is, but that, you know, it's like just knowing that doesn't stop it, it just comes along. How so? Isn't, um, can be what it, 
what I want it to be, but it's not really that. You know, one of the, one of the uh, most fun kind of delusions uh, to recognize in ourselves is actually a complaint. Any of you have any complaints? So what's behind a complaint is the, is the sort of illusion that if I were God, if I were running the universe, it would be different. Right. There's a lot, hope. hope. Yeah, hope is, is oftentimes put out as a positive quality, but it's... But it's it's, it's a grasping. It has, uh, it has some fear in it. It's like, you know, this is what's happening and I hope it'll be different. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's got some, sometimes a version. Yeah. Yeah. And it's tricky because we all came to the retreat because we were hoping for something, mm-hmm. you know, right? Wonder, wondering, as in trying to puzzle out. <laughs> Living with uncertainty. Uncertainty. Okay, is that, is that enough? Is there? Uh, are, are, anybody got a favorite that we missed? Pardon? Torpor. We might get. It's one of the big five, yeah. So, I just wanted to get some of this up here because tonight what we want to do is look at how we view this stuff. Look at how we view hindrances. And if we see these as a problem, then like Terry, we've got to change something, fix something, defeat something, override something. Um, but just as often we'll see, well, they're not the problem, but I'm the problem. And so, you know, if you see yourself as a problem, then there's something you have to do to yourself to fix, change, overcome, transcend, or something. Uh, Pema Chodron said once that to try to transform yourself is an act of self-aggression. Do you get that? Yeah. It's trying to make yourself into something that you don't think you are. So what we need is a way to see beneath the surface because um, all these qualities can be destructive in various ways. So we need a way to see beneath the surface that is neither naive nor cynical. So uh, we need a way that has the kindness, the curiosity, uh, the openness, uh, the patience of of that uh, elderly gentleman. Which is why I love the story. I just sort of want to put a metaphor or sort of a you know, kind of embodiment of what that quality might be. If we view it with that kindness and patience, then uh, sometimes the hindrance will actually begin to soften and just disappear. Other times it plops its head on our lap. <laughs> and there we are. But it actually ceases to be a problem. So I was mentioning last night, you know, that the time when having people grip, you know, and, and this exercise you used to do with people gripping a stone. And then you release the stone and it doesn't hurt anymore, but the stone hasn't changed at all. 
hindrances are, are like that. It's how we relate to them that um, is most important. So to just say it real succinctly, they think that how we relate to hindrances is one of the most important aspects of practice, more than anything else. So again, if you've had a lot of the hindrances today, then you can rejoice because you got a lot of good stuff to work with. I mean, this is great. Um, so tonight, I'd like to um, explore the nature of hindrances and how to relate to them in a way that is not naive or cynical. But before we do that, I want to step back for a moment and, uh, and ask a, a slightly larger question, which is, uh, simply put, what is meditation? You know, so we've come here you know, to learn something about meditation. The hindrances get in the way. But um, you know, what, what is meditation? What is it we're looking at? And let's do this a little differently. What, what I want you to do is just turn to somebody near you uh, and just spend a few moments sharing some of your ideas about what you think meditation is. stickiness on it. You can just sit in and make, make, make one of the threesome. Okay, just take take a, another couple minutes, few few more moments. 
So uh, what is meditation? And uh, I guess we'll have to do this succinctly. We can't have long paragraphs, but you can give a long paragraph, but we'll, we'll just give a short note. So what is meditation? Pardon? Passive attention. Observing without judgments. Observing the mind. Pardon? Observing the mind. Observing the mind. Aware of presence and present to awareness. Aware of presence and present. Presence to awareness. Acceptance. Oh, yeah, awareness and presence. Quality, alone time with our mind body. Quality, alone time with mind body. Awareness of what's happening in the mind. A tool for better living. A tool for better living. So let's keep going and we'll see if we can pick up the ones we miss. But I don't want you to start meditating during the silence. <laughs> Cultivating the wholesome. So that's um, Sada Utejaniya's, his definition of, of meditation. So, uh, cultivating wholesome qualities. Pardon? Cultivating? It's not a doing. It is. So? Is it an intention? Cultivate means to grow. You plant, you cultivate, and it grows. That's what you pay attention to. But it's not striving to make something grow. 
so obvious, but mindfulness. Mindfulness. If you put mindfulness, you also have to put heartfulness because the. So, um, does anybody remember Bhante Vimala Ramses? I think it's, I think I heard him say it. It's observe, uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe observing how the mind jumps from one thing to the other. Yeah, observing the movements of the mind's attention, how it jumps. I'll put one more up as um, watching awareness unfold. So, um, any more? So, what's the most common theme that runs through all of these? I mean, if if we put all that into a blender and chopped it up. (laughs) Awareness. Awareness. Yeah. And so awareness is, um, as we were talking about a little bit last night and some earlier today, is, um, is a really kind of mysterious thing, you know, to look at. And so a lot of these have to do with cultivating, you know, awareness in various ways. And um, maybe this is what Perry was getting at, but there, uh, and as we hinted at yesterday, there really is no way to directly cultivate awareness. Does that make sense? Uh, Kabir writes, I laugh when I hear the fish in the sea are thirsty. So cultivating awareness is a little bit like a fish swimming around looking for water. Or me looking around trying to find my glasses when, they're, you know, when I'm wearing them. Right, right. <laughs> what would I do with them? <laughs> cultivate awareness of attention. Yeah, so um, so we could, we could go a long thing about the nature of awareness, and we've, uh, and we've uh, done some of that already. But to go to the practical one that may be pointing towards is how do we uh, cultivate something that's already here? If awareness is already here, uh, then you know. Then the problem is not the awareness, but it's whatever is that's getting in the way of the awareness. Would it be waking up to it? Being... Yeah, but so 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 the problem is not is not the water, but it's the mud in the water. You know, so we can't see it. And so, um, in the mind, what is what is the stuff that gets in the mind that gets in the way of awareness? It's really simple. 
Hindrances? Yeah. And what do all the hindrances have in common? Tension. Tension. It's just right out simple as that. So we're cultivating awareness. You can't do that directly because it's already here, but there's all these, these calaces, there's junk that's floating around in the water. And so how do you get rid of it? You need to know what it is. It's tension. And so what you need to do is figure out some way to relax the tension. Anytime there's a hindrance that comes in, it is pointing towards some kind of tension that's there. And um, there is... um, The the deal about the hindrances is that they will point to what the tension is, but they won't necessarily tell us what to do about it. That's really up to us. So what do you do with tension? Six R. And I would go through the whole thing. Recognize. So, you know, recognize the hindrance is just recognize that it's there. It's not necessarily going into the content of it. Oops, there's that gesture again. (laughs) There's the hindrance. I'm incorrigible. So so recognize and then to release it and let it be, because as people have said, you know, if you try to change it, it just makes it worse. Relax the tension, bring in some wholesome qualities, and then return back. So um, let's look at how that plays out uh, in a couple of different situations. One is, um, if we look at all the hindrances over there, there are... Uh, the, I call them the big five hindrances, that almost all hindrances are in some way related to one of these big five. So somebody would just want to name one of them. Desire. Desire. Another one. Sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor. Doubt. Doubt. Aversion. Aversion. Restlessness. Restlessness, yeah. So desire, aversion, they come in the sort of polar opposite, desire, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness, edginess, um, and then doubt. And doubt actually runs through all of them. So um, the, there's, there's some great things about those. Uh, one is that the Buddha laid them out 2,600 years ago. Most of our hindrances can fall into those categories. So when you see that's what's going on, uh, you know, it really is not that personal. You know, uh, it was pretty universal at his time. This is stuff that comes up in humans. 2,600 years later, it's coming up in us. It's not something special that we're doing. It's what happens in this system. And all of us may have special little quirks on things, but in those big categories, you know, it's, it's a way of saying it's impersonal. And I would also say that embedded in all those five and all hindrances, if I were to personify them, I would say that they're all trying to get rid of themselves. Hindrances actually want what we want. So this, this is tricky. You think about it. Restlessness. What's, what's the, what's the, what are the causes and conditions for restlessness? Too much energy. Too much energy. 
And so what the restlessness wants to do is run some of that energy off. It's just trying to burn it off. And one of the ways the mind will do that is to think. And thinking will burn off energy, but very, very, very slowly. It, you know, so, so the hindrances are trying to get the right place. They're just not very skillful at it. Okay. So sloth and torpor. What's, what, what's like, what are the causes and conditions of sloth and torpor? Low energy. Yeah, there's, there's, there's not enough energy in the system. If too much energy gets restless, not enough, the, uh, the mind gets torporish and stuff. And so what the mind is trying to, uh, what the hindrance is trying to do is to get you to rest so you can replenish. But again, it's very, very inefficient at it. It's not necessarily a, a good way to go at it. Um, desire and aversion are a little trickier. Um, but um, desire... When you satisfy a desire, it feels good, right? And the reason it feels good is what? Yeah, the desire is gone or for a few moments. Right. So the desire actually gets rid of itself. And, um, but, of course, if we don't understand that, then we think that it feels good because it got what we want and we start wanting more stuff. And so it just perpetuates itself but implicit in that. And aversion is the same way. Aversion is just like a, uh, like a negative desire. Uh, so all of these are trying to get rid of themselves, and um, they're just not very good at it. So, I'm just, so my attitude towards them is that they want what's right, but we have to supply the wisdom. Uh, but it just doesn't work to fight against them because they're already going in the right directions. Um, one comment about sometimes awareness itself can be a hindrance because awareness, you can get caught into striving, looking for awareness. And that's why I say letting go instead of awareness because by letting go, you're not, a, when things come up, you're just kind of, not attaching yourself to them. If I find sometimes, though, when I'm looking, awareness, I can be looking, it can create this, um, the speculation, this idea that, hmm, mm-hmm. awareness, what's out there to be aware of. Right, right. So, um, it raises an important issue. Is there a difference between looking and seeing. What's, what's the difference? It has an agenda. And so what the awareness is, uh, is um, the awareness we're talking about cultivating is actually pretty laid back. And it is just receptive. Uh, if you are going out there looking for something, then you've got an agenda and there's something extra that's been added on top of it. And then that does create all the striving and everything else. Uh, so it's not the awareness itself, but it's striving for a particular object. You know, um, I gave the example of you know, walking through a room. If you walk through a room and I'm uh, looking for uh, Lana, 
you know, then I go, oh, well, there she is. And I may not notice anybody else that's there. But if I'm walking through the room just open to, you know, to seeing, there's a lot more that comes in. Um, my favorite metaphor of all this comes from Jack Cornfield, uh, where he talked about if you're standing beside a freeway, trying to watch the cars go by, pretty soon you get dizzy. But you could also stand by the freeway and just relax and just let your awareness be open, and then the cars go. You're not necessarily following them. You're not going after them. You're not actually trying to figure out where they went, but you're just watching the arising and the passing. And you can go, you can go through all the senses like that. Is there a different difference between um, what would it be with, with hearing, with, with listening and hearing? I know the English doesn't work so well in that. With, with all of them, you can listen for something or you can just hear. Um, and it gets tricky with the mind because it's subtler and there's, uh, and people can't monitor it for us from the outside. We can only monitor it internally. But when you open up the awareness, are you actually looking for something for the awareness or are you just letting the thoughts and the things be there? So these are great, you know, as a way in which we could go through all these and, and look if there's any countermeasures that are, that are useful. So um, the, the first thing that's important with that is just to be aware that you're spacing out. Which comes up eventually. Yeah. It could be a little while. Yeah. So um, so the, there, is, there, are, there are some interesting tools, but they, they're, they're all a little tricky. That's why I'm hesitating a little bit. Uh, one uh, that you can do is it just periodically look at what the quality of the awareness is. Not so much what's, what's there, but look at the quality. And that'll show you right away whether it's dull, whether it's tight, whether it's jumpy, whether it's edgy, or something like that. So that's a little bit of becoming aware of the qualities of your awareness at the moment. Um, and I think it can be a helpful thing to do if you do it lightly, you know, just periodically. Uh, the difficulty, you know, with sloth and torpor and spacing out is that, uh, the, is that the awareness has gone dull. And so what you're asking for is how to make the awareness more aware when the awareness is dull. And, um, and you can always look for tension. Because even in boredom and sloth and all that stuff, there's a tightness. And it's a little, it's, it's, it has a different quality. It's like, you know, desire has a particular quality. You know, grasping for, aversion has a quality. Um, uh, boredom and sloth have a different quality. It feels not so much like a grasping, but kind of a thickness. A thickness of mind. And so if you just feel the quality that's in that, and then, and then you can feel in that thickness, there's a certain type of tension. And then what you do is you don't try to get rid of the boredom. 
but you let the, let the tension relax. And as the tension relax, then the boredom becomes a kind of a mellowness, you know, sort of a wide open, spacious, ah, here we are. Yeah, yeah. So, other hindrances that people are stuck with that need some special attention? Yes, so, so basically the strategy with hindrance is all the same, uh, which is to, um, is, is basically the six Rs. And the six Rs are very effective most of the time, but sometimes there are uh, repeated patterns where something is deeply conditioned and comes up over and over and over again. Um, there's, yeah, we won't. There, there's, a, there's a sutta where uh, the Buddha is talking to his cousin Anuruddha, who is saying that uh, um, you know he's sitting there and meditating, and, and the, the mind is clear and the awareness is strong, and then it all goes dull and flat, and he can't figure out why. And uh, the Buddha's first response was, "Anuruddha, you should investigate that." <laughs> Seems like a sort of massive understatement. So, if you have have a, a repeated pattern that comes up like that, then um, you can look at that. But if there's a repeated pattern, what tends to happen is you tend to get a reaction to the repeated pattern. I call them secondary hindrances. You know, so uh, you're angry at somebody. You know, and so you six are the anger. And it quiets down, and then it comes right back up again. And then after about four or five times, you start feeling annoyed at the anger for coming up. And at that point, the anger is not really relevant anymore. It's the, it's the aversion to the anger. Both of them are aversive states. You have aversion to aversion. So if you can see how the mind is responding, the secondary hindrance, how it's relating to that, and let that unwind then the whole thing will come apart. Do you have any suggestions on how to work with that? Because that's an old friend of mine. What, what, what I would say is, is that when you recognize that there's a repeated pattern, in other words, you know, you 6R and, and, and then comes right back and so you do that over and over again and it keeps on coming back. Usually what's going on there is that the awareness is, is not actually going deep enough. So it's, it's in the recognition step. You're not seeing deeply enough what's, what's going on there um, because there's, there's probably something else underneath it that's, that's driving that. And so uh, the easiest way to look at that is, is to see what the attitude in the mind is towards this hindrance that keeps coming up. Can you ask yourself a question to see? Yes. Yeah. And then if, the, if there is a version to what's coming up, and then just knowing that. Is... Right. So, 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 for example, you know, let's say that there's somebody at work who you don't like. I know that's rare. No one has ever experienced that. Um, 
And then you find yourself, you know, kind of obsessing about what this person is doing, you know, over and over. Well, you know, the other day she did this and then did that and you know, all that. And it just keeps on coming back up. Um, well, you can actually focus in on your aversion on that person forever. And it will just spin and spin and spin and spin. Because, uh, because you're not looking at the quality of awareness. But if you see that something going on like that, uh, see how you feel about this coming up. And for me, uh, the question to look at is, uh, is there any doubt? You know, is, uh, is your faith weakened? Because that's what happens to me when there's, a, when there's a hindrance I can't handle. I think, ah, I'm not any good at this, or something like that. So there, there's, there's some doubt that's come in. So there's initial aversion, and then there's doubt about it. And if you can 6R the doubt and work with the doubt, then as that disappears, use the whole complex uh, will go away. There are... Um, the other thing that I think is really helpful to work with them is if you can see the repeated pattern somewhat impersonally. So particularly if there's a aversive situations, you know, I think as we all know, if I mentioned it already, is the mind really hangs on to aversive situations. And what it is, is it's evolutionary. It's just wired into us. You're walking down a path in some small carnivore goes right and takes a chunk out of your leg. You know? And what happens? For a long time, the mind just goes over and over and over and over. And it's trying to learn what the heck happened so you don't do it again. And so it's a pattern that's wired into us. When there's something negative happens, there's a tendency for the mind, it's just how it's wired for the brain, to go over and over and over it. And so if you can just see that it's going over and over and over it, rather than get, get caught in it, then that whole thing can start to unwind. Well, isn't that dependent origination at work? Yes. Um, but there are also, I mean, the core of dependent origination, we'll spend a night on it, but is, is, uh, is actually seeing the impersonal nature of all these processes that come up. And it just it sort of maps out, you know, how, how that can happen. Um, I, uh, I mean, it's, there was um, our next-door neighbor... Um, we're parking their car in front of our, our house. And I have lots of clients coming in, and so they have to park other places, and you can't park on the other side of the street and stuff. So, uh, And they, they were new in the neighborhood, and so I wanted to go over and talk to them about them. And i got to tell you, um, I saw the, it sort of released my inner chicken uh, as I just thought of all the different, various ways they could take this wrong. You know, and I was just sort of obsessing about all that. And I finally went over there and talked to them. And of course, they were just like normal people. It's like, oh, of course. They're like very understanding, et cetera, et cetera. And could see how the mind just builds up this whole big, big deal on that. And, uh, and the difficulty with the hindrances and stuff when you're meditating is that you don't necessarily, it's not necessarily even advised to go out and actually check it out, to, you know, to see the reality of of the situation and whether it's it's really true. 
Um, but just kind of knowing that can help you unwind it. Does that does that clear? Okay. Why is it not advised to check it out? Pardon? Why is it not advised to check out the hindrances? Oh, because uh, because they live in Sacramento and I'm in San Juan Batista, and that's that's a long proposition. <laughs> um, and eventually, of course, what happens when we're trying to look at the mind deeper and deeper is that as you see those patterns, uh, you know, in the beginning it can be helpful to check a couple of them out. And then after you get it, that the mind just creates all these scenarios, then it becomes more one of just, um, it's just six aurium right from the beginning. And if, this, and, if the, and if a pattern is deeply embedded, you may, it may keep coming back, and that you keep six aurium and it gradually subsides and if it doesn't then there's probably something hidden underneath that you're, that you're not seeing um, and you can even ask yourself the simple question what is it that I'm not seeing and the question is not an invitation to analyze it please <laughs> it's not an indication to analyze the the question is one that helps the mind uh, realize that you're actually interested in this and so you become more sensitive to when some information comes up about it Okay, so I was going to try to keep myself down to an hour. Pretty good. Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Well, you know, we talked about other things for 10 minutes. so <laughs> Actually, I'm aiming for about 45 minutes, but I'll be glad if I can keep it down to an hour. But uh, I just want to... Um, see if there's anything burning on this that, uh, that we've missed. Uh, otherwise, we, we can go on for a long time, and basically, at some point, you just need to get back to your practice. But any questions or a hindrance or some, something that you're stuck on? That just, when if a hindrance comes up um, within awareness and it comes feeling and then maybe an image or, or something, or some talking, then do we always six hours, or if it comes up within awareness, if it comes up and kind of fully develops? For that, but it still passes through awareness and it doesn't really touch so much. Do we just let that run, or do we always six hours? That's that's a great question, and we'll, we can talk about it more in context of where your practice is. But in general, uh, particularly early on, is that if the awareness is fairly clear, um, then you don't need to six hour it. As the mind gets very quiet. Um, as you're sort of taking care of the big boulders, then there's just more refined stuff, and then you would end up six Ring just every little thing that comes up, uh, even the beginning of a thought. Um, so one of the ways that you do that is you can just watch for what, what comes up before the hindrance. You know, so the mind would be very peaceful, and then it'll get a little wobbly, and then something will begin to tighten, and then the thought appears. And early on, all we see is the thought appearing. As it quiets down, you can see the stuff earlier and earlier. And as soon as you find, see the mind starting to wobble, even before you've got a clue as to what it's about, you just let it soften. And at that point, the six R's are probably just, are just one movement. You're not actually going through each of them. They're all... Um, woven into it and you just let it let it soften at that.
that point. And uh, in the upper jhanas, you do end up six R and a one R and are, are releasing everything uh, that comes up. But in the beginning, if you try to six R everything, um, it's like my image was a hamster in a wheel, but it's sort of like banging the wheel for the hamster or something. You know, you just you're just stirring up too much. Well, we can talk about where you are in your practice. This is tiny little atom that's eroding that you see. Has anyone seen that? So tiny. We're scampering around yeah. here. Mice. And I wondered what it was. Now it's not a mouse. If they're so Balls tiny. Is, Maybe it's a baby mouse. Maybe it's a baby mouse. There's a lot of mice. What is it called? A bowl? Yeah, that'll give you something to six R. So it'd be just interesting, you know, to watch. You're sitting there meditating, and you, you see that come up, and just uh, see as we were talking. I think with with don't mean to pick on you, but Gail yesterday. It happens to all of us that we'll be sitting there, and something will come up, and the mind says, "Oh, this is different," you know, and the six R's go out to what? What really is that? And you just. Re- Oh, it's in the ground. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, okay. See, it really was, it really is special. If it was in here, it's not a big deal, but out there. <laughs> no, but it's, it's fun and to actually, to see the mind do that, it's like, and away it goes, and away it goes. And, you know, and to, and to treat that with a sense of humor, it's like, oh, there it's doing its thing again. That, that, that's really a great question. So um, this is why I think it works. That, um, and it's how we humans are wired. And I don't, I, I don't understand it metaphysically. I just know practically. Is that when we get hurt a little, we experience hurt. When we get hurt a lot, we experience anger. And when the hurt is overwhelming, we experience shame. And so the difficulty with shame is that it folds back in on itself. But what you can know, if there's shame there, underneath it, there's probably some anger. And for sure, underneath the shame, there is some hurt. And if you can feel, I would say identify, but I don't mean analyze, but if you can feel where the hurt is and the tightness in that uh, and can begin to 6R and allow that, uh, and it's it's a place where the relaxing into is really important because with something like shame, there's so much aversion that comes up around that's tendency to push it away. But if it's like an old friend, and shame usually is, you know, by the time we experience shame, it's it's been around for a while. Is to is to actually um, you know recognize oh, their shame. And to release it in the sense of let it be and let it be here. And then relax into it and see if you can see where there's hurt in it and where there's that hurt to just relax the tension. And it's not to get rid of the shame, but just to to feel 
the hurt in that, and there, there'll be some tension in that, and allow that to soften. Um, and um, and if that isn't enough, and uh, then what's going on is there's some identification with the hurt, and with shame that happens a lot. And so if there's something persistent, you know, with that, then that's we shift to the forgiveness practice. You know, forgiving yourself for being hurt, forgive yourself for being shamed, forgiving the, for feeling shame, forgiving the other person for, you know, just whatever, to actually work with the forgiveness. Because what forgiveness is really good at is taking these deep, uh, almost unconscious negative states that we identify with without realizing it and flushing them up to the surface. And once they're up at the surface, then they, they, they can be released. But with shame particularly, because uh, it, it just folds in on itself. And uh, a lot of patience and a lot of compassion and a lot of, uh, you know, compassion is, uh, is the opening of the heart, the outflowing of the heart in response to um, suffering. And so it's having some compassion for your own suffering, for the shame, and just recognizing all that. Is, does that fall, does disappointment fall within all that? Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a similar dynamic. Um, when people use shame, it's, it's usually pretty, much, pretty cemented in pretty deeply, while, while disappointment is sometimes feels more like a stab, but it is basically the same dynamic. I, I don't recommend it. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a, it, it's the same thing, um, and it's it's feeling the hatred, uh, you know, which has you know sometimes almost a burning quality to it, and in uh, the tension in that, and it's you know when it's hot, it can be hot, so it has a has its own quality. And allow that allow that to soften. Um, and if it's persistent, then you go to forgiveness. And there's a lot there's a lot of self hatred in the West. It's because of how we're raised. So is that enough for the evening? I've got one more question. Sure. A little, little bit louder. I was talking to some friends about forgiveness practice, and they found it to be there's a lot of aversion towards the idea of forgiveness practice, and I couldn't understand why that would be. Well, uh, because forgiveness is a really tricky word. Um, forgiveness, um, I always use Lily Tomlin's uh, description of forgiveness, which is giving up all hope of ever having a better past. Um, for a lot of people, forgiveness is confused with saying that what happened was okay. And forgiveness can also be with confused. Say, if I forgive the person, then I have to be open to them. And, um, and I think all that forgiveness really is, is just, uh, is just recognizing that what happened is in the past. And, 
if there's somebody who has, you know, a pattern of attacking you where you're vulnerable, um, you know, to have your compassionate defenses available, you know, is just wise. You know, and at some time when you're clear, etc., you know, somebody can come at you with a big attack and, and you look at them and you just feel bad for them. But if you know somebody has a capacity to hook you, then, you know, to, you know for, to forgive them for hurting you doesn't mean that now you have to be open to them, that, that uh, you may still want to put limits on it. Uh, and to forgive them, or to forgive yourself doesn't mean that what you did or what they did, forgiving yourself, forgiving another, doesn't mean that that's okay. It just means that it happened in the past, and here we are now, and where, where are we going from here? So my, my story of a girlfriend who uh, got into a fight and she took this painting that I had and cut it up into little pieces. And, um, and I could just feel that, that she was just trying to do whatever she could to hurt me. And I hadn't, I had been a little blind. I hadn't seen that, um, that kind of level of viciousness. And, we made up, we resolved that, you know, we worked through that particular situation. But I was now aware that she was capable of, of uh, you know, when I was vulnerable, of coming at me that way. And I didn't want to have a primary relationship like that. So it wasn't like shutting her out or something, but we just began to drift apart because, um, because she wasn't who I thought she was. And so I saw her more clearly, you know, who she was. And, um, and I have to say, I still hold the, a soft place in my heart for her many, 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 you know, years later. But, uh, but that relationship, that closeness was gone. So forgiving someone does, you know, it doesn't mean that, that now you have to make yourself vulnerable. Um, there are ways of making yourself vulnerable that are hurtful to you. That's a whole different thing. But it doesn't, uh, you don't have to be naive. You know. Really forgiving is taking care of yourself. Yes. It's not about the other person. So there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Yeah. Reconciliation takes two people to really work through it. Forgiveness you can do by yourself. And the other person can spin off and do all kinds of things, but... You've kind of taken care of what's what's there. Thank you for that. In, um, can I add something? So, in terms of the practice, forgiveness practice and uh, metta practice, one difference is also that in this tradition, metta practice is the main practice. So, it's kind of going to forgiveness is kind of off track. Right. So that's the other reason why people may feel that uh, aversion to it or not. Okay. That's a possibility. I, I would say, in my experience, is that everybody at some point needs to do some forgiveness practice. Some people is right at the very beginning. Um, for me, it was, it was actually it, it was in, uh, important for me getting unstuck and uh, moving into the eighth jhana. There was some really deep piece of stuff there I hadn't seen, and there was something about when I finally got a hold of that and did the forgiveness practice, it kind of loosened it all up. And you know, so, I think in different places, uh, it's it's a very powerful practice. There are times and places where the meditation alone 
is, um, boy, I just I just feel like I've got to be careful here. <laughs> it sounds like sacrilegious. But there are times when, when the meditation practice alone is not enough. There, there are places where we can get stuck in things where there are actually other tools around. And the forgiveness, as you say, is a different kind of practice. But it, the forgiveness is more... You can get through those deep uh, identifications with negative states using this uh, straight um, you know, meta practice, jhana practice. Um, but forgiveness can sometimes just move through it uh, just a lot, lot, lot faster in certain situations. And so in our little sangha back in Sacramento, we've been looking at a whole bunches of, of little practices that, uh, that can be really helpful in special kinds of knots where the Buddha says, Anaruta, you should investigate that. You know, he's doing the practice right. Something's stuck. You need, you need to look at that. Okay. So, if you've got some good energy, you all look so much better than you did last night, just from up here. And I don't doubt there's still some fatigue and stuff, but I can I can see it's coming along. And I really look forward to getting a chance to uh, see you all individually tomorrow. Um, so if you feel like you have some good energy, um, keep going. Keep going. Uh, get yourself some tea, go for a walk, or just, uh, just stay right with it. And um, and it's really helpful to know and develop the wisdom of knowing when it's time to practice, when it's time to go to sleep, when it's time to walk, when it's time to sit. And the only way, well, the only way I ever learned this stuff is to do it wrong. You know, I'll go to bed too, too early and I think I'm tired and I lie there awake for a long time. Um, or, or I get up and I push myself to meditate. So um, that's the way you develop wisdom, is you just take your best shot at it and then pay attention to what happens. And if you called it wrong, then that becomes information and that feeds back in. And then over time, you just get wiser and wiser about handling yourself. Um, and so please do that and do that with uh, a great deal of care. And let me close with just one more thing since we're talking about gentleness and kindness and all this. Uh, This is from Adrian Rich, the feminist poet. She writes, Gentleness is active. Gentleness swabs the crusted stump, invents the more merciful instrument to touch the wound beyond the wound, does not faint with disgust, will not be driven off keeps bearing witness calmly against the predator, the parasite. I am tired of faint-heartedness. So kindness should not be confused with faint-heartedness. Kindness can be quite fierce. And so you will know sometimes, you know, when you're in a tight place and you're sitting, Sometimes what it just needs is, is some gentle fierceness to stay through and just to stay with it until it unwinds. Other times, 
the most important thing is to shift energy. Get up and walk, go to sleep, do something different. And just pay attention to all those because it's those stuck places and what we do with them that is so important in how this unfolds. Um, and one last thing from Utejaniya. Maybe I said this before, but I'll, I'll say it every night. He says there are no mistakes. There are no mistakes. There's only lessons. You know, so if you do something and it doesn't work out, if you can learn something from it, then it's all to the good. And if you're like me, it's like the only way I learn. You know, it's like I have to hit every tree. Um, but when I learn it, by golly, I know it. It's, I got I got the scars to scars to show it. So stay with yourself in the vernacular. You know, stay 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 with stay with awareness. Stay with the mind, heart. Be open and gentle and kind. And all of us together now, just open up your heart and your awareness and just sending it out to other people in the room. Your other yogis who are sitting through this with you. May they know kindness. May they know fierceness. May they know depth. May they know well-being. May they know freedom. And then taking this wish and sending it out to the birds that are cooing, to the little critters crawling through the grass, to the brothers and the, all of the other folks that are taking care of us, and then out into a wider and wider world out there. May all beings everywhere no kindness, no depth, no courage, no simplicity, no freedom. May all beings be free. And may all beings have sweet dreams. May it be so. Blessed be. <laughs>